morning, trying to start a little more on time, because I want to try and get through all of Daniel today. I don't know if we will, and that's okay. Um, we've got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Chronicles, so it'll be fine. It'll, everything will be hunky-dory okay um, if, if Daniel bleeds in a little bit more. I wanted to take a week specifically aside and um, spend time in Daniel, so added another week and setting aside to, to look at it here. Maddie, I feel a little loud, but maybe not. I can't tell. If everyone, no, no one's, okay. As long as no one's given objections, we should be fine. So let me pray, and then we will, we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for even just this, this season where we're reminded of you, the coming Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption for your people. Um, Lord, I pray that um, at a time like this, we would um, have hearts that are focused on you, receptive to uh, the promises that you have for us in your word. Pray that as we look at Daniel, um, that it would not just be something intellectually that fills our minds, but that it would um, soak down into our hearts, that we would love you and worship you more as a result. Be with us as we look at this book. Pray that um, it would be clear. Um, and that the words you've given us would be, um, we would understand them, and our lives would be changed as a result. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Daniel. If you guys have the notes, I, I gave you an appendix there um, dealing with all the usage of uh, last days or latter days. So that's um, second page. And the reason why I did that is because I don't think we're going to be able to talk about that. And so that's your homework if you want, Okay. Um, in the last days, or in the latter days, it pops up, I think, twice in Daniel. Um, and it's basically how, how the Old Testament authors will use it. It's kind of, it's this introductory formula for what we would call, you know, like eschatology, end times. Hey, it, this is coming, not in the near future, but this is actually far off, okay? And so I put, I just went on, you know, Old Testament, I searched in the latter days. Those are all those instances, okay? So if you want to look more into that there's your homework, and you can study the context and see what's going on there, okay? So that's just, that's extra. With coming to Daniel, um, it's one of those books where, you know, it's like trying to wrap your arms around, it's like trying to wrap your arms around like a great sequoia, like you just can't do it, um, especially in 45 minutes, but well, we're going to do the best we possibly can. I thought this was a good quote from an uh, Old Testament scholar. Maybe we'll encourage you. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Working with Daniel requires extra patience and care. Nearly everything about Daniel remains in sharp dispute, including dating, the identities of many rulers, the level of satire and the narratives and their larger functions, the genre of the visions as prophecy or apocalyptic or otherwise, the relationship between the Aramaic and Hebrew sections, and many kinds of historical and literary difficulties. So there, everything in Daniel is just easy to understand, is what he's saying there. Um, no, that's not what he's saying. It, it, Daniel is a complex book, okay? Um, you could say it's kind of like the Revelation, you know, in the New Testament. This is kind of like Revelation in the Old Testament, right? Daniel has complex parts, but I don't think that that means that it's unintelligible. I think we can um, understand it. Just to give you guys, hopefully, an encouragement. Um, I was studying this book, and I was making good progress, but there was just something that was just, I was just like, man, I, this doesn't make sense. Why? Are we making this leap? Why are, we, why are all these commentaries saying this? And it was just like this aha moment, and it just totally 
flip the switch, and it wasn't like this profound, you know, like, you know, ecstatic moment. Like, I was literally just reading Daniel, and I read a verse that is, is hopefully we'll get to it, and you're like, how did you not read that? Well, it's because I wasn't reading my Bible. I was just thinking about all these other things, okay? And it was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And so I just wanted to say that kind of as an introduction, like, just read your Bible. That, that sounds, I know it's like, okay, we know that. But really, there's no substitute for just reading the Bible and just rereading it and asking questions and rereading it. And, I mean, I was thankful. I, I, it, was, it was in chapter 8. He was dealing with the Medes and the Persians and um, Greece. And um, I just had to stop, and I just prayed, and I thanked the Lord. God, thank you so much for helping me. Like, just study your word. And it was a good reflection for me, and this is for all of us, like in our personal Bible study, don't wait till that point. Before you, what I'm trying to say is before you start reading the Bible, pray and ask the Lord for help rather than wait till the end. Like, it was kind of a rebuke for me. Like, I was like, oh, I can figure this out. I just got to study this, study this. And I was just hitting my head against the wall. I'm so confused. I was just like, oh, God's word. So it just, I, I don't know, I, I, hopefully that encourages you guys. If it doesn't, take comfort in this, Daniel 12, 8. Daniel 12, 8, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. After all these visions, Daniel says this, I heard, but I did not understand. Sometimes that's going to happen, okay? Um, and that's when we ask the Lord for his help. So just a couple introductory words on, on eschatology here, study of last things. It's not about, uh, and these are just points from uh, my professor, Dr. Chow, and at Masters. He said, eschatology isn't about charts. It's not about fitting everything in these neat diagrams. It's meant to comfort believers. I think that's really helpful. Sometimes we can get so bogged down with when is this going to happen, et cetera, et cetera, and especially with the book of Daniel. I mean, if you don't come to the book of Daniel and you're not comforted by God's sovereignty over all of history, all of it, we're missing the point of the book. It's meant to comfort believers. You could say if you don't know eschatology, you don't have hope. You have no firm foundation. You have no steadfast assurance of your hope. And so we need to study these last things. It's hard, but I don't think it's ambiguous. I don't think it's, well, who knows? You know, the, it's, it's so mysterious that we just can't understand. No, I think it's hard work, but we can understand. So that's just a couple things about eschatology. So Daniel, I'll, I'll get into my notes. I, I had to, I filled up two pages, and so I'm like, I'm going to try and stick to my notes even more this time so we can, we can get through. So Daniel, if you guys are reading um, Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, which if you haven't, you need to read that book. Um, you should. He does a really good job of talking about how in the Tanakh, which is the um, uh, Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, Daniel is the resumption of the storyline, okay? So you have Genesis, um, the first section there. I'm actually, I can't remember exactly where it ends. He has it in his book there. Um, I think with Kings. I think it ends at Kings. Yeah, it does. Genesis to 2 Kings. And then they have a pause, and it's kind of this commentary is what he calls it. And, and that's the prophetic writings, right? What we were looking at, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all that stuff. And then the storyline actually picks back up in Daniel, okay? That, that's the, the Hebrew way of that third section of the Old Testament. The storyline picks back up. So what we'd been looking at was kind of this pause, this commentary. Well, now we're picking back up with that storyline, okay? And as such, I think he makes a really good point is that there's a lot of Daniel that echoes Genesis, which makes sense because Genesis, first book of the first section, Daniel 
first book of the third section. Does that make sense? And so there's some echoes that we're going to see. Daniel, and this is like Zechariah, you could say it's, it's repackaging and focusing in on here's what's going to happen. Okay? So he's going to take these details of Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel, and he's going to say, if we're confused, okay, when are these things going to happen? I'm, I'm okay, you know, God's glory is going to fill the earth. He's high and lifted up. Okay, how does this all fit together? Does that make sense? Daniel's doing that. He's helping us see how this fits together. If you want to, we'll just jump ahead to the first slide here. Um, you know, kind of this introduction. So if you have the notes, date, author, setting, purpose. Daniel's written from the perspective of exile, okay? So Daniel... Um, he's concerned about the end of exile. When is God going to bring his people back? And kind of this question is, what's the destiny of God's nation now? We're in exile. Okay, but what about all these promises in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel? God bringing his people back, right? That's not the case because we're in exile. So when is that going to happen? Has God abandoned his promises? Has he just forsaken his people Israel? That's kind of this key question going into this. You kind of see this, Daniel 1, the introduction here, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, um, I don't have the highlights on that screen for some reason, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So the parallels of this, if you want to look up, um, 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah also talks about this, by the way, Um, but it's kind of this first wave of exile. You guys remember, I, I mentioned that a little bit, that it's not just like, okay, one thing happens, you know, the, Bab- the Babylonians come, and everyone's taken into exile. No, it's actually, there's kind of these waves, okay? And then, you know, they kind of set up a puppet uh, kingdom, and then they come back, and there's, from what we understand, at least three waves of exile. Um, Daniel's early, okay? Daniel's probably that first wave of exile. This is probably like 605 B.C. is when he's taken um, to Babylon, okay? Kind of that first wave of exile. So he's early early on. And like I said, Second Chronicles 36, Jeremiah also talks about that, okay? So he's taken early. More than anything, so that's date, like I said, 605, so he's writing, or would that be 6th century BC? He's writing after that, okay? So in the, you know, 500s. Date, author, okay, Daniel wrote Daniel, okay? I know, aha. Uh, but this is actually a, a big point of debate. Now, it wasn't until we came to the 20th century and a bunch of Germans were like, nope, this isn't true. Um, and the reason why, it's very similar to Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 45 talks about Cyrus. It actually names a king. Hey, he's going to bring the people back. So liberals hate that because if this is a prophecy 200 years in advance, well, they, they go, well, that can't be true. There's no way. It has to be written after that if he's going to know Cyrus. Well, we believe, what? Inspiration. It's prophecy. God names it, okay? It's going to happen. It's the exact same thing with Daniel uh, 10 and 11, chapters 10 and 11, it's so precise that the liberals have to go, no, this has to be written like second century BC because he's dealing with um, these kingdoms of uh, the Medes and the Persians and Greece. And it's so precise, this intertestamental period, that they're like, well, this can't be written. This has to be written second century BC. Well, we go, no. Okay, it's actually very clear that no one was actually debating this until the 20th century. We all were saying Daniel wrote this in 6th century BC, and he's prophesying things to come. It's actually one of the greatest proofs we have for the inspiration of Scripture. Because if it's that precise, you have to go, what, this is supernatural. No guy is just whipping this stuff up, okay? So I'm not going to spend more time on this, but Daniel wrote Daniel, okay? And that's amazing. 
kind of the setting purpose. We talked about um, uh, exile purpose. You could say this, God's roadmap of history, okay? This is God laying out what's going to happen. This is um, laying out all of history. More than anything, Daniel teaches the sovereignty of God over all of history. This is his roadmap for the suffering of the Messiah and then his glorious return. This is talking about all world powers, all world nations, until God installs his kingdom. I know I talk about how every book is amazing, but like Daniel is actually like really amazing, okay? It is awesome, okay? And we're going to try and, like I said, if we don't finish it all today, it's fine. We'll, we'll catch up, okay? So that's kind of the setting. Okay, overview structure. See that on your notes? It, it's kind of, um, I would argue it's, it's a big picture chiasm, okay? Chiasm is just kind of like a fancy word for a sandwich, you know, so like, Chapters 1 and 12 kind of echo each other, 2 and, you know, 11, stuff like that. You really see this um, on your first page. You should, should see chiastic structure of Daniel 2, 7. See that at the bottom, Aramaic section? Yes? Okay. That is common to every single person I've ever read on Daniel. They all see that 2 mirrors 7, 3 mirrors 6, 4 mirrors 5. And so big picture, you see these connections, okay? Daniel is full of visions, Visions and dreams, and this is important, they're connected and they're interrelated, okay? It's important to see this, that the visions are echoing one another and they're reflecting on one another. Some people will say that and then to fit their interpretive system, to fit their grid, they will say, yes, they're all interrelated except this part, okay? I would argue, no, we don't do that, okay? If these earlier parts are connected, then we're on safe ground saying all the parts are connected. Does that make sense? That, that the dreams and the visions are helping us understand one another. They're not random. We use them to interpret one another. I would argue that Daniel 7 is the central part of the book. Daniel 7. That Daniel 7 is the clearest unpacking of the whole contents of the book. And so Daniel 7 is where we really want to focus to help us understand the other parts. You could say um, he's drawing together, like I said, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's arguing, number one, God is going to rule exclusively, only him. He is going to be the one high and lifted up. Only Christ is going to rule, okay, exclusively. Number two, he's going to rule with his transformed people. It's, it's in Daniel. I talked about this when I preached on 2 Corinthians 8. It's here in Daniel where we see this first usage of the holy ones, which we talk about the saints, right? And I would argue that Paul, when he talks about saints in the New Testament, he's drawing back on Daniel 7. Over and over and over, we see in Daniel 7, the holy ones. It's a, um, the grammatical construction is only found at this one point in the Old Testament, and it's there like five times, okay? The holy ones, the saints. So God is going to rule exclusively. He's going to rule with his transformed people. All right, let's get into this. Point one, God's present rule over Israel. Point A. So turn, if you're not there in your Bibles, turn there because we're going to be flipping through a lot of passages. Daniel 1. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. So you still have this up there, right? The Lord gave. You see that? The Lord gave. That's all I'm calling you to see. The Lord gave. Chapter 1, verse 9. And God gave. Daniel favor. Chapter 1, verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and wisdom insight. Okay, so chapter 1 is already cluing us in to the sovereignty of God. He is the one 
who's giving them wisdom. He's the one giving them favor. He is in complete control, okay? You could say, you know, God is playing chess, and he's got both pieces, and he's just manipulating them according to his will. And chapter one is already cluing us into that's what's, what he's going to do with the nations. He's moving the chess pieces around. Um, the Babylonians, they change um, the Hebrew names to um, Babylonian names, trying to blot out any memory of God, I would argue, from um, you know, these guys, Daniel, you know, Abednego. What is it, you know, make the bed, shake the bed, and the bed we go, like you've heard that, to maybe remember those guys' names. Um, it, changing their names to blot out any memory of Yahweh. But God is in complete sovereign control. I would say this also. I, I wasn't going to say this as a joke, and then I looked it up. I didn't know. People always talk about, like, the Daniel diet. You guys remember that? I didn't know there was a book out there on the Daniel. It has, like, sold lots of copies. It's like, whoa. I'll say this. Daniel 1 is not about the Daniel diet, okay? You should eat healthy, but that's not the point of chapter 1, okay? I didn't know. I mean, this book has maybe millions of copies, but hey, eat healthy, but ultimately, they prospered and flourished because what? God gave them that, okay? So just an aside. Okay, chapter 2. And this is where we're going to slow down. Point B, God's rule over the nation's present and future. Chapters 3 to 6 are great. I mean, these are, you know, VBS and Sunday school. We talk about these, you know, the lion's den, fiery furnace, the writing on the wall. We just can't spend a ton of time on those, okay? They're great. I'm going to spend a little bit of time just quickly, but we need to spend time on chapters 2 and 7, okay? Chapters 2 and chapter 7. In chapter 2, verse 4, this is later on, chapter 2, verse 4, the book of Daniel switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, okay? which is from Hebrew to Aramaic. It's, I think there's a small portion of Ezra and Nehemiah that might be in Aramaic too. Um, but this is the main section, okay, uh, in the Old Testament, in Aramaic. And one of the reasons why, I would argue, and this is kind of debatable, but Aramaic would be the language common to the world, uh, to make it simple. And so I would argue chapters 2 and 7, the language common to everyone, because this vision needs to be common to everyone. The whole world needs to understand what's going to happen, and this vision concerns the whole world. Does that make sense? I think that's why, and one of the reasons it shifts to Aramaic is so that the whole world would understand this is what's going to happen. So chapter 2, verse 25, you guys remember this, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, okay? And, uh, you know, no one can figure it out, and, you know, the wise men are like, oh, great king, tell us the dream and we're going to interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, no. If you guys are stalling, you don't actually know what we're talking about. You need to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they're like, we can't do that. That's right. No one can. But Daniel comes and he says, verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 20, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Okay? And this is why I gave you that extra page, is because this is concerning not just the immediate future, but we would say eschatology, to the end of the days, in the last days. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel is going to interpret the dream here. This is chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. 
This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of, what does it say? It cuts off here on this page, of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, now the subsequent vision of Daniel 7 helps us to understand what's going on here, and also Daniel goes on to interpret, hey, here's what all these things stand for, okay? So I'm just going to give you bullet points what's going on. Number one, the head of gold is referring to Babylon, okay? The head of gold is referring to Babylon. Number two, the arms of silver, that's referring to Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians. Okay, the arms of silver, Medo-Persia. Number three, the middle and thighs of bronze, referring to Greece. Then number four, the iron and clay mix refers to this kind of Rome hybrid, okay? But Rome and kind of this, there's something about the fourth kingdom that's unique, okay? That's all I'll say. Now, the most unique aspect is what? Verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Okay, this is distinctly not like the other kingdoms, right? This is not human kingdoms, you could say. This is not a humanly, earthly kingdom. This is something different. But you could say with these these kingdoms, number one, Babylon, number two, Medo-Persia, number three, Greece, number four, Rome, this is this collected power of man, all nations for all time. And then this stone comes, and it becomes a great mountain. Okay, now, if anyone remembers Isaiah, do you remember a, a passage where it talks about same introductory formula, in the latter days, there's going to be a great mountain? You guys remember that? Isaiah chapter 2, I think it's verse 2, if you have the um, hand out there. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be high and lifted up, and all the nations are going to flow to it. Okay, so Daniel is drawing on that. And you also have this mountain is going to, what, fill the whole earth. Okay, well, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 11, and um, was it Habakkuk have talked about that, right? The glory of the Lord is going to fill the whole earth. So Daniel is drawing on these various prophecies that, the prophets are talking about, and he's saying, hey, this mountain of the Lord, when God is going to reign on the earth, and he's going to fill the earth with glory, it's the same thing he's talking about here in verse 34. Daniel is drawing these things together. So after all these kingdoms of mankind, after Babylon, after the Medes and the Persians, after Greece, after Rome, God, the stone cut out by no human hands, is going to reign. Do you guys see what's going on there? You see the progression, what Daniel is saying here? And I'm going to jump ahead here. This is, this is the interpretation, okay? Um, this is chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdom, kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, 
and its interpretation sure. So that's the interpretation. After all these kingdoms, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom, okay? I would just say this, and sometimes we miss this in, in thinking about eschatology and some of these systems. This is a real kingdom on the earth. You guys see that? Like, we, we don't need to do anything different with the text. He's going to set up a kingdom. It's going to be distinctly different, but it replaces all these other kingdoms that were on earth, okay? This is a real kingdom on the earth. The rock comes and destroys all the other kingdoms, okay? So this is kind of, you know, bleeding into, you know, maybe you've heard like post-millennialism, amillennialism, pre-millennialism. This is one of those reasons why we're pre-millennial is because God comes and then sets up his kingdom, okay? Like, he comes and then the kingdom, it's not like something else. It's just simple. <laughs> God comes and he sets up his kingdom. And we'll get into this more when we talk about Daniel 7, but just contra to post-millennialism, which argues that the world gets better and better and better, and then God returns, that we have, the, we have the, you know, this golden age, thousand-year reign of Christ, and then he returns. Well, Daniel 7 makes it very, very clear that the earth is not getting better and better and better. It's getting worse and worse and worse, and then he comes, okay? And I would say, contra to amillennialism, where it's just a spiritual kingdom, or it's a kingdom, you know, not of this world, it's a heavenly kingdom. Well, yes, we do agree that God has a heavenly kingdom, but where's this kingdom on earth? Okay. This is a coming kingdom where God is going to reign on the earth. Okay, so that's chapter 2. We'll get into this a little more if something's a little confused when we get to um, Daniel 7. I think this is kind of funny. Daniel chapter 3, he has this dream about a statue, and it has all these different, you know, gold, silver, you know, all these different materials. And he's told, like, hey, you're the head of gold. But then all these other images after you, he, he's saying, hey, your kingdom's not going to last forever. What does Nebuchadnezzar do, chapter 3, verse 1? He makes an image of pure gold. He's saying, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I I'm going to make my own statue. I uh, it's all gold. It's all Babylon. You guys see the, the irony there, right? I, I think that's kind of funny. He clearly was not listening to that vision, okay? He doesn't get it. He wants to reign over it all. I'll just say this if you notice in chapter 3, verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. That's another key phrase we see a lot in Daniel. Do you guys remember like maybe another book where it's like, hey, every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to worship the Lord, right? Revelation, right? Where's John getting that from? I would argue Daniel. And so we see peoples, nations, and languages a lot. Chapter 3, this is where I'm going to move fast. You're familiar with Fiery Furnace, right? Um, you know, the three guys get thrown in the fiery furnace. There's a fourth guy in there. Um, I would argue it's probably Christ himself, second person of the Trinity. Um, that's chapter three. The Lord delivers them. Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, this God is the, is the true God, but I don't really think he's not. I would argue he's not saved at this point, if he is saved. There's kind of debate. Does Nebuchadnezzar get saved? I hope so. I hope he's came in heaven, but not at this point. Um, he's not saved. Chapter four. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has this other dream that Daniel interprets, and uh, he's like, yeah, hey, God is great, but uh, doesn't last that long, right? And then he's humbled to look like a beast, right? And he goes out, and he's just all this time. 
I think if Nebuchadnezzar is converted, it's here at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and the kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Nebuchadnezzar, and you see this here, these, these parallels, right, on that chart. You know, so you have Yahweh's sovereignty over history, two and seven. Yahweh's deliverance of his own, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It echoes, um, or parallels Daniel in the lion's den, God delivering him. Then you have this Yahweh's humbling of the proud. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. And then in chapter five, I, I love this passage. Chapter five, the handwriting on the wall. I mean, it's incredibly sobering. But when, you know, the interpretation, the Lord says, you have been weighed and found wanting, just like, oh, man, like, it's like, that's so awesome. But at the same time, it's like really humbling. Like, man, I don't want to be weighed and found wanting. And the only way we're weighed and not found wanting is if we're in Christ, because he's the only one who measures up. Um, but I love this passage, chapter 5, of just this justice is served. So you have uh, Belshazzar. So he's, you know, kind of this um, probably like grandson of Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. So he dies, and you see at the end of... Um, Chapter 5, verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we have, in the book of Daniel, we're moving from the head of gold, right, Babylon, to the next one down. We're already on kingdom number two. We're moving down, okay? We have the Medes and the Persians. Chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, God delivers his people. Um, Darius says the same thing at the end. He wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages, and so... Yes, I, do, I can't say more on Daniel 6. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Turn there if you're not. Daniel 7. And yeah, we're not going to finish Daniel. And it's okay. We'll, we'll focus on Daniel 7. This is central to the book. I think if you understand this, you can understand all of Daniel. Oh, did it change? There we go. Daniel 7. I'll just say this. The parallels between... Daniel 7, 8, and 9, chapter 7, 8, and 9, and the parallels with um, Revelation, the book of Revelation 11, 12, and 13 are striking. Like, if you just read Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and then you go read Revelation 11, 12, and 13, you're going to be like, I think these guys are talking about the same thing. I think there's something going on here, okay? Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision. So whereas he's interpreting other people's visions, now he has his own. And I want to read, what do I have up there, 2 to, two to 8. Just follow along with me. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And just already, what does that sound like? Well, actually, I need to read verse 3. And four great beasts, okay? And then he's going to describe them as animals. Okay, where else... Maybe like in the first book of the Bible, do we see like the spirit of the Lord stirring up the sea and there's like animals? Genesis 1, creation language, okay? There's creation language. And I'll explain why this is significant. Keep reading with me. Daniel 7 verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. 
Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now, that kind of sounds like exactly what just happened to Nebuchadnezzar, correct? He was made like a beast, and then he was given you know, his sense, and he stands back up. That's already happened. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now notice this here. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, so this fourth kingdom, this fourth beast is different from the rest. Okay? This is unique. This is something different. And this final horn, the verse says what? It is like a man, and it speaks great things. Okay, we already talked about this kind of creation language. Okay, was there a creature in the garden that spoke great things? Serpent, right? The serpent is this crafty creature that speaks. And in context, Daniel is saying, hey, there's this scary final horn, okay? That's what he says, this little horn, okay, that comes up after these ten horns. And, and this guy is scary, and he's speaking great things. And who is going to deal with this horn? It's kind of like the same thing in Genesis 3, after the fall, right? You know, the, the serpent has brought about the curse because he's deceived um, Adam and Eve. And there's a promise of one who's going to crush the serpent's head, right? You remember this, Genesis 3? Daniel 7 is kind of setting up the same problem. Now keep reading. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure, pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out. From before him. Now I put up here, this is Daniel 7. Remember Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 1, where it's kind of like, man, what's going on here? Like, like, what is this vision of this throne room of God is actually what we saw. And how does Ezekiel describe that throne room? He sees one sitting on the throne in the like, or excuse me, in the likeness of a throne, like sapphire stone in appearance, and upon the likeness of the throne, one sitting on the throne, high up, was the likeness of one with the appearance of a man. Then I saw from the appearance of his loins and upward something like the gleam of glowing metal with the appearance of fire all around within him. I saw something with the appearance of fire and there was radiance all around him. I think Daniel's seen the same thing. He's seen God on the throne. And I think we're clued into that by all this like fire language, right? It's the same picture of God on the throne. And keep reading here. I think I have the next, well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But you see God is on the throne he is the one who's going to deal with this little horn. God himself is going to solve this problem of this creature speaking great things. 
you read in verse 11 that the beast was killed, right? Like, it's, it's not even an issue for him. Daniel 7, verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This final kingdom isn't even a, a problem for God to deal with. He just kills him, and he's done with him. Keep reading verse 13, the same vision I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, there's that key phrase again, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man comes, and he is the one ruling over this kingdom. He is the one who deals with the final beast. And this is where it's so helpful when we interpret this and mirror it with Daniel 2, right, in the statues of the four kingdoms. It's the same thing here in Daniel 7, only in, you know, if that's 480p, you know, 480 pixels, this is 1080p or 4K, right? Um, this is, okay, here's what's going on. The Son of Man comes. You have on the back of that first page a quote from um, Abner Chow dealing with the Son of Man, okay? The Son of Man conveys both his power, his greatness, and his weakness, which makes sense because of like the suffering servant, right? That, that he suffers, but he is also greatly exalted. And this title, Son of Man, it's the one that Jesus uses most for himself when we come to the Gospels. And I think he's drawing on Daniel 7. I think he's saying that's who he is. He is the Son of Man, the one who comes with the clouds of heaven, which, by the way, the only other person who is told to come with the clouds of heaven in the Old Testament is God himself. So this son of man is like man, but he's also distinctly different. Notice this as well. I don't know if you guys remember when uh, Mark was preaching through the Olivet Discourse. When is this kingdom going to come? I would argue Daniel 7 shows it's at the very end, in the last days, and I would also say Jesus says the exact same thing in the Olivet Discourse. He argues the exact same thing. You see these phrases, right? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying this is a future thing to happen. It didn't happen in his first coming, correct? Right? He's saying this is going to come. And, this is significant for Daniel 9, we're not going to be able to talk about it, but in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says that his coming with the clouds of heaven is going to happen after the abomination of desolation, okay? Just write that down, Abom- what? Abomination of desolation. That happens first, and then the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven, okay? Revelation 1 also says, he pieces, I think it's Revelation 1-7, he talks about you know, uh, Jesus Christ is coming, he's going to return, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, referring back to Zechariah 12, and he also says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. I think John and Jesus are just going back to Daniel 7, and they're saying the Son of Man is still to come with the clouds of heaven. Does that make sense? I know it's a little complicated, but that kingdom is still to come. It's still to come in the future. You could summarize it like this. The Son of Man is the coming stone of Daniel 2. 
who will shatter the kingdoms of this world and reign over every people, every nation, and every language. And that's going to come after the abomination of desolation, which is in Daniel 9. Okay. I just got to go a little bit more. And then if we, I'll, I'll try and pause um, if we have questions. But this is Daniel 7, uh, verse 15, where you're like, hey, man, Caleb, how do we know this stuff? Just read Daniel. Because he actually tells you, God says. Because Daniel is maybe like all of us, we're like, hey, what does this mean? How do we know? And God is like, hey, I'm going to let you know. Here's what it means. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Yeah, if I had those visions, me too. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him for the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, and all this other stuff, and about the ten horns. Um, verse 21, and as I looked, this horn made war, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, 22, until the Ancient of Days came. And so there you see, Ancient of Days is actually parallel with what? Who? Son of Man. Deity, right? And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints, when the holy ones, possessed the kingdom. Um, actually, let me just go to the next slide, and then I'll have some summary thoughts on this. Verse 23, then he said, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the foreign ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Underline that, something, highlight it in your Bible somehow. That's a key phrase in the book of Daniel and Revelation. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion, dominion of this little horn, after this fourth kingdom, shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Just one thing on this. In Daniel 7, verse 13, he talks about the Son of Man comes, and he's the one who possesses the kingdom. Yes? Track with me on that? The Son of Man possesses the kingdom. Well, throughout this prophecy, and throughout chapter 7, Daniel is saying, who gets the kingdom? What group of people? The saints. And so what people will do, they get kind of weird with this, and they'll say, the Son of Man refers to a collective group of people. Okay? I would argue, no, the Son of Man is one person, but the saints are going to rule with that Son of Man. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, this notion of what we call corporate solidarity, where the one represents the many because the many are united with him, that actually makes perfect sense, that there's going to be one supreme ruler who represents the people who are in him. This is, a, this is why we talk about union with Christ. We are in Christ. That's the thing. We're not holy. We're not saints because of anything we've done in and of ourselves. We're holy because we're found in the Holy One, right? Our, our justification is in Christ. Our sanctification is in him. Everything we have is connected to Christ. I think the New Testament authors are just drawing on the Old Testament, in particular Daniel 7. 
this doctrine of union with Christ, union with the Son of Man. Okay, that was a lot, and we're already out of time. We're going to look at chapters 8 to the end, and I don't know how, how far we'll go after that. But this class will end at some point. Um, we will finish the Old Testament. Um, any questions on that? I know that was a lot. Maybe if you're confused, come back next week, because 8 through the end is really helpful, and there's a lot of amazing stuff. If there's anything unclear, please come talk to me. I'd love to try and help um, as best as I can. But did that excite anyone? Like, is anyone like, wow, that's really cool? Like, I don't know about you guys, but when you work through Daniel and you just see, man, every prophecy has come true, especially we'll get to this next week. Like, if these 500 years were perfect to the T prophecies, we can have full and complete assurance that the rest are going to be true, right? That's kind of how prophecy works, is it's like, Hey, the prophet says this is going to happen. When that happens, we know the other thing's going to happen. And so Daniel and the study of eschatology really should strengthen our faith because we know that God is going to achieve his purpose, his plan. The Son of Man is going to come. He's going to reign forever, and his glory is going to fill the whole earth. All right, you're dismissed. Rest of Daniel next week.